0: Today, we are going to begin uh, a new preaching series, which I've entitled Intervention. And interventions are common practices or common practice in our society, in our culture. And I believe it's important for us as we begin the series to have an understanding of what an intervention is and why we would be looking at that from a biblical perspective. There are many definitions and opinions of what constitutes an intervention. Some of them are good, and some of them are suspect. An intervention, it's sort of hard to describe, but really it's, it's a coming together. It's a surprise party for people who, are, who have addictions. And you get in their face and you scream at them and you make them feel really badly about themselves. And then they stop. Some of them are suspect, the definitions. Now, for the purpose of this series, we're not going to be relying on Michael Scott's definition or understanding of an intervention. My goal is not to be getting into each person's face and yelling At you until you change. The definition that we're going to be working with for the purpose of this series is this it's an occasion, an intervention is an occasion on which a person is confronted in an attempt to persuade them to address a critical issue. An occasion on which a person is confronted in an attempt to persuade them to address a critical issue. Now, while interventions are usually focused on an individual, for the purpose of our series, our focus will be on both. We'll focus on our own individual lives, but also we will focus on our corporate lives as the body of Jesus Christ, his church. Now, the scriptural basis of this series will be the seven messages... Communicated by the Holy Spirit to the seven churches in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. I want us to note that it is the Holy Spirit that is the one who is leading the intervention. And it's important for us to hear the message that the Holy Spirit is communicating to us as individuals and as a church through these seven churches what is being said to them that is relevant for us today as the spirit speaks to us i believe we have an important a critically important message to share the bible calls the message that we as followers of jesus christ share it calls it the gospel the gospel and the word gospel simply means good news the gospel is good news. And we as followers of Jesus have been called to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so obviously as followers of Jesus who are called to share the gospel, the good news, we want people to hear the good news. We want people to to not only hear the good news, we want people to respond to the good news. Because we believe that our world desperately needs the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we, we want people to hear the news. We want them to be impacted by the news. We want our world to be changed because of the good news of Jesus Christ. The main theme of our series will be this. If we desire our world to hear the message of the gospel, we must begin by first hearing the message that God has for us, the church. If we refuse to listen, to hear, to respond to the message that God by the Holy Spirit is communicating to us his church, how can we ever expect that our world will listen to the message that we are trying to communicate to them? The receiving of the news, the good news, has to begin with us. It's important for us to understand that our lives, how we live our lives, who we are, Our character, our lifestyles, our actions, who we are, is every bit as much communicating the gospel, the good news, as the words that we use to share the gospel. In fact, I would suggest they're even more impacting. There's no question that the book of Revelation is a unique book of the Bible, it's very unique. And I believe that no other book has been more misunderstood, more misrepresented, more miscommunicated than the book of Revelation. All throughout the history of Christianity over the last 2,000 years, there have been many high-profile church leaders who have even questioned whether or not the book of Revelation should even be included in the Bible. There's been debate and issue about whether we even make it a part of of the New Testament canon or if it should be left out, and there's been varying opinions on that. It's been a very controversial book. The book of Revelation has been twisted by deranged and, and mentally ill individuals Throughout history, and we even see in more modern history, we see leaders like Charles Manson in California in the nineteen sixties justifying his cult and his murderous behavior on the book of Revelation. We see it even in in closer to our time with David Koresh in Waco, Texas in nineteen ninety-three doing the same, a cult and a misunderstanding built around gathering people, people dying, people being mistreated, all in the name of the book of Revelation. The evangelical world is filled with preachers who claim to hold the key to unlocking the code of the book of Revelation in order to explain what is happening in our world today in very specific ways ways. No other book has been or continues to be more misunderstood, more misrepresented, and more miscommunicated than the book of Revelation. And so I believe that if we are going to value and glean from the book of Revelation, it's important for us to understand what it is that makes it so special. What is it that makes it so unique? And understand the valuable contribution that the book of Revelation has to make to us, not only in our individual lives, but in the church of Jesus Christ. As we live out our lives, living kingdom life, as we are anticipating the second coming of Jesus. Now, the book of Revelation needs to be understood respected, and valued for what it is. And so for this reason, as I was wrestling through this series, I decided that rather than going right to the first church this morning, jumping right in on that first church today, I believe it's important for us to begin this series, to begin today with a brief overview of the book of Revelation so that perhaps we can gain some understanding of what, what it is that we're reading and what it is that makes this book so special, yet so easily misunderstood. Now, the normal approach to preaching, those of you who I've heard lots of sermons. In one of the courses that I teach, one of the first exercises the students have to do is they have to try to do a mathematical calculation of how many sermons they think they've heard in a lifetime. It's quite an alarming exercise, actually, when you think, wow, I've suffered that much in my lifetime. The normal approach to preaching is first the biblical understanding. Well, what is the Bible saying? why was that written? Who was it written to? What was going on at the time? Why are those words being said? What, you know, what's happening there? Because we can, otherwise we are just taking words and making them what we want them to be. So the first part of, of preaching is normally to say, you know, what's happening in that text? What's the biblical understanding? What is the Bible saying? Because our goal is not to make the Bible say what we want it to say. Our goal is for the Bible to say to us what it wants to say. So that's where we start. And then once we've unpacked that, then the practical application comes. Then we have the side of, okay, so that's what the Bible is saying. That's what it was saying 2,000 years ago when it was read. That's what it was saying 4,000 years ago when it was written. But what is it saying to me What is it saying to the church right here and right now in my time? How should I, how should we respond to what we're reading in light of understanding what the Bible says? Now, the technical term for that is the so what question. So we read the Bible, so what? What does that now mean for me? How is that to impact my life? How does that change what I believe, how I live, how I treat others? So what? How important is that? And so that's the normal approach to preaching, or it should be. But today, because we're setting up a series, we're going to be leaning heavily on the biblical understanding side with a small amount of practical application. Because over the next seven weeks after today, as we look closely at each of the seven messages given to each of the seven churches, there's going to be lots of both biblical understanding and practical application as we allow the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives and into our church. And so I say all that to say I believe it's important for us and to begin this way now i think it would be fair to say that today we'll center more around teaching than preaching and if you know me you know that i really enjoy that and some of you might and some of you may not and sometimes i've been accused of being too academic and i tell people i am not an academic if you want to see what an academic looks like let me introduce you to my friends i'm not an academic i'm a pastor who leans towards academic things, but I'm not an academic. And so I think today will be more of a teaching foundation, more than a preaching foundation, that will prepare us for, to hear and receive the next seven messages that we unpack. Our scripture for today is Revelation 1, 1 to 8. Hannah read it, thank you. I know she's not here right now, but I appreciate her having read that for us. And the passage that she read is the introduction to this great book. And so I wanted to start there this morning. I want to start by beginning with the context of the book of Revelation. The author of the book of Revelation is given to us in the opening verse. We are given his name. There are some books of the Bible where the name of the author is not given, and there are great debates through the years of whether who it was, who he was, or even who she was that wrote that particular text. And there's varying opinions and so on. But this one is a little bit easier because he says who he is right in the very first verse. He says that he is his servant, Jesus' servant, John. So he gives us his name. In terms of the New Testament, John and the community of faith that he's associated with is responsible for the writing of the Gospel of John, which is the fourth gospel. He, this community is responsible for the writing of the epistles of John, first, second, and third John and also for the writing of the book of Revelation. As we go through it, you may notice that there is similar language, similar theology, similar themes that are found in all of these writings, That link them together. You can see the common thread. Some of the examples are if you read the book, the Gospel of John, there's a tremendous amount of legal terminology on witnesses and testimony found in the fourth gospel. And we see that all through all of these writings the emphasis on testimony and witnesses. We see a common thread of Jesus being portrayed as we know in the Bible he's portrayed in many ways but through John's writing in this community Jesus is often portrayed as the Lamb of God. You'll see this idea of Jesus being the word of God through those writings and you'll also see that there is a theme of love a theme of love that is very dominant in all of these writings and so all of these writings are connected, and that's important because later when we want to understand why certain things are being written the way they are, it's better to align them to how the writer's been talking about them in other places because it, it would make sense. So John is the author. The location is the island of Patmos, just off the coast of, near Ephesus in the Aegean Sea, and John is most likely exiled there. The timing. We're told it's the Lord's day. The Lord's day is resurrection day, the first day of the week. So it's Sunday that this is taking place. And we're told that it's not just the Lord's day, but John is in the spirit. And so what does that mean that John is in the spirit? Does it mean that John is has been slain. He's on the floor. He's in a trance. What, what does it mean that it says that he's in the Spirit? And I think it's best to understand this as, as the Holy Spirit is having a moment with John. John is having an experience with the Holy Spirit where there is a vision that is taking place and the vision has come from God and it's been given to John, and John has been given not only the authority, but the mandate to write down the details of the vision that he's having because the intention of this vision is not just for John to have a moment, have an experience, wow, that was great, I hope this happens again next Sunday, but rather this is important to what, the, what God wants to say to the seven churches in Asia. The recipients, who's this book written to? Well, we're told there are Christians in the Roman province of Asia, and it's towards the end of the first century, and they're the intended recipients of this message from God. And I also want us to note that the purpose is not to provide a code to be broken in order to understand and predict future events, it was a message from God to help the Christians in Asia understand that God was still at work despite their broken and sinful world. That's the intention of this vision. And so we see on this little map here, you can see the island of Patmos and then Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and you notice that I put in the red dot so we could see that that's the order that the churches are addressed. And this is just for free, but it would make sense that they're addressed in this order because in the time at this point in history, that is actually the road of the trade routes and the postal service. And so that's how information would travel in this geographical area in this day, how it would start, where it would go to next, and so on. And so we see that. Happening. Revelation is a unique book of the Bible in that it covers what we might call three genres or styles of writing. First, it's a letter, and it's very clear that it's a letter. It starts like many of Paul's writings start when he's writing a letter. Paul's writings are letters to different groups of people in different places, different churches. It's a letter. It's one letter. It's not seven letters. It's one letter, and it's addressed to seven groups of people, seven churches. And there are seven specific messages, each unique to the church that is identified with it, that's included in this one letter. Now, it is important for us to understand that the number seven in the book of Revelation, is a symbol of completeness, wholeness, completeness. And so while the letter is specifically addressed to seven churches, the message of the letters is for all churches for all time. All the messages contained in this letter were to be read to all the churches. It wouldn't get to, you know, Pergamum and they go, well, let's just skip over what he said to emphasis and let's get on to us. No, no, no. What did he say to all seven? It's important for us to hear the whole letter. We're not just meant to read the parts that we think are specific to us. No, we have to read the whole letter. So it's a letter, one letter, but it's a prophecy. It's a letter, but it's also a prophecy. And what's unique about it, It's a Christian prophecy. It's a Christian prophecy. And it's written in the style that is similar in the Old Testament for Jewish prophecy. And John, in it as he's writing, you know, in the the vision itself, the book of Revelation itself claims to be a a prophecy. We're not reading it and going, oh, this sounds like a prophecy. No, it says this is a prophecy prophecy. And John himself says, I am a prophet as I'm writing this. It's a prophecy to end all prophecies. So it's a letter. It's a prophecy. But it's also Jewish apocalyptic literature. And this is really, really important. It's written in a style that's similar to the book of Daniel and similar to the book of Ezekiel. And there's a lot of other Jewish apocalyptic literature that's not contained in our scriptures, but is an important part of of Jewish spirituality, and so it aligns with that style of writing as well. So you have this book, and one of the things that makes it so unique, you know, the others are like, well, this is a gospel, or this is a letter, or this is a prophetic work. No, this is a letter, this is a prophecy, and it's Jewish apocalyptic literature. And all of those things affect how we read it and we understand it. And so that's the context of the book of Revelation. My second point is that I want to unpack what does it mean that it's Jewish apocalyptic literature. Because apocalyptic literature, if we understand what that is, then we have a better understanding of reading this book when we read it. To truly appreciate and understand the book of Revelation, we need to increase our understanding of apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature has a unique style of writing. Now, you may have noticed that if you've read the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic literature is complex and sophisticated. It uses imagery. It uses ideas. It uses unusual vocabulary that is more artistic and more complex than normal, everyday writing. Apocalyptic literature is not written to be read by someone alone in their living room as they're going through the words that are on the pages. Apocalyptic literature was written to be heard. In fact, you see that in the opening verses, as you hear this being read to you. It would be read out loud in a public worship gathering. If that document arrived at Evangel Today for us, then the expectation is that we would read the letter together. We wouldn't just circulate it and say, hey, you know, Jen, when you're finished with it, can you pass it on to Larry and he'll read it and then he'll pass it on, you know, to somebody else. No, the idea is we have to be here together. It has to be read out loud in the context of our spiritual worship gathering and we need to hear together what it has to say. In fact, sometimes it was even acted out using drama and so on. It wasn't intended to be quietly read on your own. Apocalyptic literature uses symbols to communicate the message that those hearing the message will understand and be able to relate to. And so while we are here 2,000 years later, struggling to understand the symbolism, while someone who is an expert is telling us that grasshoppers are Apache helicopters and so on, we're trying to understand it and figuring it out. 2,000 years later, trying to wrap our heads around the symbolism, the intended audience in this day likely would have understood it completely. They would have understood it because they understood the context in which they were living and they would have understood the symbolism and it would have made sense to them and it would have been an easy, easy application for them. Apocalyptic literature appeals to the senses. You'll notice when you read Revelation, it focuses on what you can see and all this amazing stuff is unfolding to watch. But it also focuses on what you're hearing, thunder, voices, sounds. It focuses on smells like incense and other things. So your, your senses are being bombarded as you read it, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're smelling, what you can touch, even what you can taste. It uses language vividly, the colors. It talks about vivid colors, right? Clothed in rainbow, sounds and dramatic, thunder, lightning. All of these things were common and are common. To apocalyptic literature in symbolism as people read them. It's a unique style of writing. That's why the book of Revelation doesn't look like anything else that you find in the New Testament. It wasn't intended to be. It's a completely different style. It's like your whole life reading biographies and then all of a sudden one day, you know, you're reading fiction and you go, wow, like this is, this is completely different. Yes, it is. It's intended to be. It's that way on purpose. It's a unique style of writing. Secondly, it's written during unique circumstances. Apocalyptic literature was written during times of despair, times of intense persecution, opposition, hardship, affliction, imprisonment, and martyrdom, slander. All of these things happening to those who were faithful to God. And all of this is happening to them because they are faithful and determined to stay committed to God. They haven't done anything wrong other than they are deemed by those who are not faithful to God to not be worthy to be treated with respect and dignity because they should be punished because they are faithful to God. Now unlike most Jewish prophecy, apocalyptic literature was not about repentance or righteousness or returning to God. Much of the prophecy in the Old Testament that we read is because the Jewish people were asked to act a certain way, to live a certain way, to be honorable to God, to be obedient to God. And if they were, this would be the result. But if they disobeyed, this would be the result. And of course, we see time and time again that they get away from what God is asking. And so God raises up a prophet, either calling them back or telling them, because you've done this, this is gonna, these are going to be the consequences to you. And so Jewish Old Testament prophecy mostly revolves around calling people to repentance. You've messed up. You need to repent. You need to walk a new road. You need to change your direction. You need to to become, you know, focus on the righteousness of God and honor and return to God. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament. But apocalyptic literature is not about that. That's not the theme. Apocalyptic literature was written as a source of encouragement. To have patience. To have trust in God, in the midst of what appears to be the most painful experience of your life, of the nation's life, of the church's life. It's not about criticizing. It's not about wagging the finger and like, you know what, folks, we, we," you know, here's some practical application. (laughs) We go through those times sometimes where we're going through a hard time and things are happening that are difficult and sometimes people come alongside and say, you know, I know you're struggling and I just want to encourage you and help you and then there's other people who are so incredibly spiritual that they can look into the scenario and tell you why your life is so miserable. This is what you've done. This is what you should have done. You know, if you had raised your kids better, if you had done more with your marriage, and and you get beat up for it, and sometimes the reason some of us don't want to share our pain is because we don't need more criticism and pain. And so apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation, was never intended to inflict pain on God's people as they struggled. It was intended to say, listen, have patience. Hang in there. Trust God in the midst of the hardship. In apocalyptic literature, even though they are heavily persecuted, and I do hear North American Christians talk about that, and I say shame on us for even using the word. We're not even worthy to use that word. Like, really, we need a reality check if we think we're persecuted. But even though they're heavily persecuted, they're expected to be faithful witnesses participating despite their pain in helping convert the nations to the things of God. Now Jesus is referred to in the book of Revelation as the faithful witness. The faithful witness. He's the standard. He's the example. And the very next phrase says, yes, he's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Those are not accidental phrases. He was raised from the dead. But why did he die? Because he was a faithful witness. Being a faithful witness led to death. And in Revelation fourteen four, it says, they, the faithful witnesses, follow the lamb wherever he goes. The lamb's life led to sacrifice to death, to all, to, and ultimately to resurrection. And as faithful witnesses that follow the lamb, they're being reminded here that, yes, as faithful witnesses, some of you are going to be killed. Some of you are going to die. He didn't come and say, good news, I'm going to put a hedge of protection around all of you, and you're going to be good. No, no. You're going to die. You're going to be killed for your faith. You're going to be killed for nothing more than being faithful to serving Jesus Christ. But like the faithful witness, you too will be raised. It's not the end, there's hope. The common theme you'll see woven through Revelation is about being an overcomer, the one who overcomes. Pushing on in faithfulness despite the hardships, pushing on, being a witness in a cruel and broken and undeserving world, even though your world is crumbling. Thirdly, it has, and finally, it has a unique perspective. Apocalyptic literature enables the reader, the hearer, I should say, to see their current world, to see their current circumstances, their their current pain, their their current realities. It transports them from seeing it through the eyes of their pain and and their overwhelmed sense of, of hopelessness and transports them to the vantage point and perspective of the heavenly throne of God. Now, chances are, how you and I view our world and our pain and our struggles is very different than when we get to see them from God's perspective. And that's what apocalyptic literature, that's the gift that it provides. Allowing us to shift our focus from seeing it here in the midst of it. It's like being at an event I have to speak theoretically because I don't like going to events. But you're at an event with a lot of people. And, you know, you slip away from the crowd and you find yourself on a balcony somewhere upstairs and you're looking down at all of this crowd and all of a sudden the perspective is completely different from there than it was when you were swarming in the middle of it. And that's what apocalyptic literature does for us. It it allows us to see the big picture. It allows us to be reminded of our circumstances and the reality, the ultimate reality, from the vantage point of the throne of God. And when we get to see our lives and our pain and our realities from the vantage point of the throne of God, it instills hope. It's a game changer. And that's what apocalyptic literature sets out to do. The prominent question in apocalyptic literature is this, who is the Lord of the earth? Who is it? Who's in control? Who's the king above all kings? Who is the ruler of the rulers? Who is it? Who is ultimately in control? That is the question that apocalyptic literature sets out to answer so that by the time you're finished hearing it, there is no question of who will ultimately be victorious. Apocalyptic literature answers that question. In the book of Revelation, we're introduced to the evil opposition. Let's call them the unholy trinity. You have Satan. You have the beast. You have the false prophet. The unholy trinity. But in Revelation, we're also introduced to the holy trinity. We're introduced to the one who sits on the throne. The Father. We're introduced to the Lamb, the Son. We're introduced to the seven spirits, the complete spirit, the ultimate of spirit of all spirits, the Holy Spirit. And what we see as we're reading it is that we see a present reality battling out against future hope. That's what you see when you read Revelation. You have present reality coming up against future hope. And they're fighting it out. And as we read the whole book of Revelation, we see that in the end, it is the Lamb who overcomes and is victorious. In the end, evil is judged. In the end, evil is punished. In the end, salvation is awarded to the faithful witnesses that overcame. The overriding theme of apocalyptic literature is this. Things are bad now. There's no question. Things are bad, unbearable, unthinkable, hopeless, despairing. But in the end, God will be victorious. And we will be victorious. That's the message of apocalyptic literature. That is the intent every time it is given and written. It is an attempt to help people get up out of the mud and shake it off and keep going even though it's terrible because in the end you're going to win if you're a faithful witness to him who overcomes through him who's already overcome. And so... Over the next few weeks, we will be considering specifically the message, the messages that the Holy Spirit had for each of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And we'll also be asking us the question, I understand what it meant for them, but what does God by his Holy Spirit want to say for us? to us right now what is the holy spirit intervening in in our church in my life to point out something harmful and dangerous and destructive to help me to go from being overcome to being an overcomer what is the spirit speaking to us right now and we will be reminded that even though we are faithful witnesses and pressing on in the midst of hardship, even though we're faithful to God and we're not going to give up, there are still some things that we need to hear, that we may need to be corrected in our lives if we're truly going to be overcomers. Now, if you're at a point in your life where you've got this all figured out, and there's nothing left to change. You are fully sanctified. You are the next best thing to Jesus. I give you permission to take the next seven weeks off. You clearly don't need to be here. But I will be here. Because I will tell you that I am far from that. And we will, and, and the Spirit will speak to our lives and remind us and help us to be overcomers and to be faithful witnesses so that we can experience the victory that Jesus brings. Hardship in this life never gives us a free pass to not be faithful witnesses that Jesus is calling us to be. I'm sorry, but it doesn't. We can never reach a point in our lives and say, you know, I'm, I, I have... You know, I'm really sick, or I'm dying, or I've lost my job, or my marriage is falling apart, or my kids hate me, or my kids are all messed up, or it's hard, I get it, and I'm not diminishing it. But please understand, the painful reality of those things never allow us a free pass to not be faithful witnesses. If we ever need a time when we need to stay faithful to God, it is when life is as horrible as we could have ever imagined it could be at this point in time. We press on. I would invite our worship team back. You know what's interesting? I thought this was going to be like 15 minutes. Whoops. Folks, today we are embarking on an intervention journey. And we're not doing it on our own in the seclusion of our houses, although it may end up there as God is working in our lives. But we're going it together. Because what he's saying to us is what he's saying, and what he's saying to our church is, is a part of all of us, and we need to hear it together and acknowledge it together and work through it together. Together. This is an important journey. It's a really important journey. And it's important because, as I said when we started, if we desire our world to hear the message of the gospel, we must begin by hearing the message that God has for us, His church. Would you stand with me this morning?